Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, uh, Question by Question, with your host, me, Karen Bauer. Uh, it sounds like I'm like a, a radio host or a talk show host or something when I say your host, but just welcome back to the podcast. Um, I'm so excited to have this week's special guest on. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I'm Janet, Karen's mom. Yes, Janet. Um, so my mom is kind of like a little uh, local celebrity around around my Instagram. My friends just adore my mom. She's so fun, so funny. I feel like she was always like the really cool mom when I was growing up, which is really fun. Um, and people just, they love a good Janet and Karen content. So we're giving it to the people. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and um, unfortunately, I'm not with my mom in Wisconsin right now due to COVID-19, so we are recording this virtually. Um, I'm on the phone with her right now, so I hope that the quality sounds good still, and this week's episode is all about really what it means to um, be a white person and to adopt black children. So if you don't know, I and my sister are both um, black and our mom is white and we were adopted in 2001 in Wisconsin. And so, you know, my mom and I, I feel like we haven't actually really had a long conversation talking about what it really means and like what what it means for us to be a family, like an interracial family family in a lot of ways when it comes to like adoption so I'm excited to have this conversation today um how are you feeling mom yeah I'm excited probably a little anxious I don't want to move around too much and cause problems with the sound quality and you're very good uh on the podcast and so I'm hoping that I can also contribute so do you want to give a little bit of background information on yourself just maybe saying um what you do for a living and any fun facts or something about yourself um well i happen to be a therapist in a private practice clinic i work predominantly with children and teenagers although i do also have adult clients i am the proud mom of both of my daughters and a proud grandma for goodness sake and she's a proud grandma to the world's cutest and sassiest little boy uh, my my nephew is just truly so cute so it's very exciting for us all and just to remind everyone, if this is your first time listening to the podcast about the format on question by question, um, we have a topic in mind before. So my mom knew that we were going to be talking about um, what it means to adopt black girls as a white woman. And then my mom came up with a few questions to ask me and I came up with a few questions to ask her. And we'll just go and have a conversation infusing our questions for one another. So, Mom, do you have a preference on who starts with the first question? I would love it if you would start first, if you're okay with that. Yes, I definitely am. And it's actually kind of great because my questions, my, my first one at least, is very much a good way of starting the conversation off. So, my first question is just, um, in general, when did you know that you wanted to adopt children? So, actually, I knew I wanted to adopt children when I was in high school. And I also knew there were a lot of children who didn't have families. And at that time, I knew that the children I would adopt, they would probably be African-American 
largely because I was aware that there are a number of people who, because of their, their racism or their uncomfortability and a variety of other things, only wanted to adopt white babies. And I knew there's a number of black children who don't ever get adopted. And I did not think that that was okay. That's really great that you knew so young, you know, you were only a teenager when you knew that you wanted to adopt. You knew at that age that you wanted to adopt and you actually ended up doing it. Because I think a lot of people can say, you know, when they're younger, like, I want to have five children or I want to adopt or I want to do this or that. And then obviously their opinions change um, when they grow up. So it's really interesting seeing that you that's something that you were very firm and knowing about yourself and you actually were able to um, see it through as well. So what's your question for me? You know that I just read the book by Brittany Cooper, um, Eloquent Rage, and she talks about respectability. And one of the things that I'm aware of is that I did things as a mom to push respectability on, you know, to you and your sister. And I'm kind of wondering what you think about that now. You know, what does that mean to you, respectability? What kind of burden is that for you? those kinds of things. Mm. Can you give an example when you say you you did things to push um, respectability on my sister and I? For example, I would say don't get too close to things in the store because people will think that you're trying to steal them. Or certainly as young women, I had clothing types that I wanted you to wear and others that I didn't want you to wear. And that probably would have been true no matter if you were white or black. But I'm, I'm thinking about some of those kinds of things, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's pause for a second. Hello, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. This is future Karen um, editing. And I just want to say that um, following my mom's question, I launch into a whole sort of talk about respectability politics. And I realized that I never gave a definition of what it was. And I was using it in a very flippant way, um, which makes it confusing. <laughs> so I wanted to just stop for a second and give a little context for what I mean when I say respectability politics. The term respectability politics was coined um, in Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham's Righteous Discontent, the Woman's Movement in the Black Baptist Church. 1880 to 1920. Marginalized people, BIPOC folks, will act in a way that um, is considered quote-unquote respectable for um, white folks. And it's a way to appease white folks. So, and it's a way, and you do so by not um, following or giving in, I guess, to um, stereotypical traits um, that are given to uh, BIPOC folks by white people. So an example of this is that there's a stereotype that black people are very loud and if I was working within the the realms of respectability politics I would be soft-spoken you know and that and this is usually you see respectability politics operating within structures and systems that are very white so if I was in the university setting I would be trying to be very quiet and I would keep my hair very straightened and you know this and that to distance myself from stereotypes and in a way by doing so I would be moving up in the ladder of whiteness and it's a way to um, be respected by those you're seeking respect from so the oppressors essentially but I hope that definition sort of helps to set the the stage for my answers coming forward and I do realize that I use the term in a very flippant way but in general I'm just talking about the ways in which people of color and by and, and black people um, monitor themselves and to act in certain ways um, 
that don't get them killed a lot of these ways are operating within whiteness so okay i hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast back to past karen it's interesting because of course as a child you don't see those things as you know being being within the realm of respectability politics which we see all the time now i think especially the older you are and the more you're entering into a career and um you know professionalism all that kind of thing all that kind of stuff and as younger i think i just sort of saw it as you were nagging (laughs) you know classic mom just being like don't do that don't do that but I also know that, like, so the example you gave about, you know, don't get too close to things in stores because people will think you're stealing. I knew at a young age that that was a racial sort of um, warning as well that you're giving my sister and I, because we had there were times when we would go to stores. So an example of this is one time my sister and I were in Macy's and we were in the jewelry department. Um, and this was older white woman was following us around constantly and she was really keeping an eye on us to make sure that we weren't taking anything and it was very clear that she was doing so because we were two black girls in a jewelry department um at a store and so you know in a lot of ways it's sad that you have to do to to signal certain things um but also i think it was helpful as well at a young age to see you know and know that people will treat me and my sister differently given our race and because of that we sort of have to act in a certain way which again there's a kind of two sides to the coin because it's great to like to know this at a young age but then it's also very sad to have to know this at a young age that you are being treated differently and um now when it comes to respectability i think that for me i am you know in graduate school and I'm constantly having to um, act in a certain way and present myself in a certain way, given my environment. In general, respectability politics are racialized and racist. It's kind of like the whole social construct thing. Race is a social construct. That's not to say that it doesn't operate in certain ways. And it's still powerful in, in, in a lot of ways as well. And so I think that respectability politics are, of course, socially constructed. But at the same time, they do operate within the world. And I was able to see that as a young age, the ways in which the way that I had to act um, in order to be respected. And I think that also has to go with um, when I switched to a, from public school to private school as well. I also was operating within respectability politics, having to wear certain dress codes and having to have my hair kept a certain way and acting a certain way. That was also very racially enacted as well yeah and you know i remember saying to you and your sister it's not fair it's not right but it is true people will treat you differently when we are in public spaces than they are going to treat white kids and unfortunately that means your behavior needs to be better in some ways and i didn't like it i didn't like that that's what i was saying to you you know it it's bothered me quite a bit and um so anyway it's it's tough because there's no other way of putting it it's the same with you know a lot of times for younger black boys their parents will say you know you need to be careful when you're out because people will 
try to get you arrested and killed by the cops and you need to make sure that you're not you know doing anything quote unquote wrong or looking or dressing a certain way or whatever to make sure that you um aren't a target it's so messed up in so many ways that we have to constantly be policing our bodies and our behaviors and who we are in order to not be policed by others but at the same time it's it's almost a catch-22 because no matter what no matter how we are operating within the world we will always be being policed by other people and so it's tough i think that's a really interesting question to talk about respectability politics and especially how to discuss them with children at a very young age without leaning into the problems of respectability politics so that makes sense when you're white and you're adopting black children, there's a fair amount of stuff about hair. And are you treating your child's hair correctly? Are you damaging their hair? Are you um, showing that you care about them in the way their hair is presented? And um, I do remember there was an African woman, American woman at that time who at one point said to me, well, if she was my kid, I'd just hold her down, throw her to the ground, hold her down, and I'd just brush it. And um, given some of your past history and given who I was as a mom, as yes, I wanted to do your hair, but no, I wasn't willing to go to some of the extremes that were being suggested. Along the same lines of what we're talking about, operating within respectability politics, uh, it's really important especially within the black community to have your hair looking a very certain way and to making sure that you're not sort of running around um, with unkept hair. And so I remember my mom would do my hair for me and we would sort of have a ritual about it. So we'd be in the living room and we would have the TV on. It'd be early in the morning. And so I'd be watching cartoons and I'd be sitting on the ground and my mom would be sitting on the couch and I'd be right by her legs and she would be doing my hair. So in that way, it was nice because I was easily distracted by the cartoons <laughs> um, and it was sort of a, also a bonding exercise as well. Um, we were able to um, have time together and watch this you know, show together, but also was really an act of care as well to have my mom you know, spend the mornings doing this with my sister and I. And my sister and I have very, very different hair. So you know, having to learn how to do different types of hair as well is really important and having to take the time to do hair for both of us. And my mom is a single mom too, so it wasn't like she had that much help to, to do that as well. Just following up, I was wondering who who did you seek out to teach you about how to do um, black girls' hair? Um, as you know, a friend of mine who had a daughter who was biracial was one of the people that I talked to. There were other African-American women that I spoke to. There were things I read. So it was a, you know, it was a combination of a variety of, variety of that. I would love to do a whole podcast episode about black girls' hair and hair care journey. A lot of people don't know just really the significance of hair for black people and the maintenance as well that goes into taking care of one's hair. And so I think that would be really interesting. And also going off of hair, I remember so at a certain age, my mom let me, you know, it's kind of like with when you're younger, your parents pick out your outfit for you, they do your hair, da da da. And then at a certain age, I was able to do that stuff for myself. And so I, of course, being a child, didn't want to have to do the sort of um, labor that my mom had done with my hair. So I would never really 
take care of it. I would just throw it up and say good, good day. And as a child, you're, you know, running around constantly. So it gets messed up really easily. And so I remember once we were in, I think it was like an office depot and there were a lot of black women there and they were all staring at me and they're staring at my hair in a very sort of like a, uh oh, you know, type of way. And I remember feeling like confused and self-conscious and not understanding why they were looking at me like that. And I don't know if they made a comment or not to you, mom, but I mean, now it's really easy to see that you you can be judged pretty easily by the way that your hair is kept or unkept. And so I, I wasn't really operating within the assumed respectable or respectability politics that I, I you know, quote unquote, should have been as a black woman. And um, I was called out in a quiet way, if that makes sense, <laughs> which, in, which is almost worse than someone coming up to me and saying, why is your hair like that? You know, I could just see it in their eyes and the way they were looking at me. And that really sort of that's when I sort of realized, oh, shit, you know, like I need to start doing something with my hair because people will judge me for it. And, you know, an extension of that judging my mom as well for the, the, the way that my hair was looking. I'll have to do a whole episode all about hair because there's a lot that goes into um, a black woman's hair journey. So, yeah, well, we'll save that for another time. <laughs> so my sister and I were adopted kind of a little bit later. So I was seven years old and then I think she was eight or nine years old. A lot of times when people are adopting, they might seek out babies. So why did you feel like you wanted to adopt two girls who were a little bit older? And also my sister and I, we had a lot of behavioral issues as well. Yeah, we, we came from a very um, fraught household before. So what made you want to adopt older kids and kids with a lot of behavioral issues? Well, first of all, the behavioral issues were not your fault. They were not your fault. And, um, you know, any child who has um, a difficult biological family and then you were in, oh goodness, I don't know if it was three or four different foster homes before you came to me. And your sister was even in one where they told her they were going to adopt her. And then it's kind of like, no, no, we're kind of sorry. We're, you need to leave. So there was a lot of things going on. And um, as far as adopting older kids, it's because I knew that people often want babies. And so again, I knew if, you're, if, if it's older kids, then they're going to be overlooked. And that didn't seem fair to me. Regarding the, you know, some of the behaviors, yes, I did actually um, request that I could parent some kids who, well, foster parent at first, children who had been um, seen as having attachment disorders. Because by that time in my life, I knew kind of what I needed to do to be helpful. And how did you know that? You know, I had a two and a half year experience with a foster daughter well before you and your sister came. And, you know, I'll do a shout out to Jennifer. Uh, taught me about kids who had had multiple homes, kids who had maybe had some traumatic experiences and kind of how they 
might behave as a result and what they really needed. So yeah, my sister and I, so we, we were sometimes in the same home when we were in foster care, but oftentimes we were in different households during our foster care years. And so it was not, it was, it was always really nice when we were able to visit each other, but also when we were able to stay in the same home together. So um, in, you know, raising two girls in the same home as a single, you know, woman is not easy. So what also made you realize that you wanted to adopt two girls two black girls with behavioral issues at the same time (laughs) well you know for a while I only had your sister living with me and then we would visit and you had a different foster mom and we would all visit together and um I hated the way you were being treated you were given lots of medications you were really out of it because of that you know in fact i think you might remember this when you came bowling one time with us we you know i was giving you caffeine to try to liven you up because you were so listless because of all the medication and when jasmine became available for adoption i was clear that i hoped that i could also adopt you because i believe that the two of you deserve to be together you know it seemed that you enjoyed being with each other and that you had the right to be together is that is any of that surprising to you no i mean i've i've heard this before i just wanted to maybe give some more insight from people who might not know about me and about sort of my my adoption history because yeah like you're saying we were in foster care i think when we were three and four is when we started being in foster care actually you know what it was before that. Of course, you had some behaviors given traumas and given being moved from house to house. Of course, you had some behaviors that sometimes were difficult, but it made sense. Who wouldn't? As a young black woman, what do you want more of or less of related to me? It's funny because in all of my other relationships, you know, be it with my partner or with my let's say my advisor or a friend of course it's important to evaluate and reevaluate what the relationship is doing for you and and if you need more from it or less but it's interesting that i've never thought about that with you before one of the things that i you know think about is as your mom i take the role of protecting you you know seriously although now you're a young adult you do that yourself and sometimes when things are happening especially these days with just things that are happening in your department or things that are happening in minneapolis after george floyd was killed there's times that i think okay am i saying too much and not listening enough i hope that i don't ever give you the impression that i think that you are not able to deal with things because i know that you are but i I don't want to look like some, you know, stupid white woman who thinks she knows better. Well, I was going to say that um, I think over the years, and especially once I entered graduate school, I think our relationship changed in a lot of ways where it was a lot of me sort of asking for space to vent and you listening. So it was a lot of, uh, it wasn't as much of like you giving me maybe advice or you leading the conversation, but it was a lot of me talking to you um which i thought was really helpful i mean so many times i would call my mom after a really really hard day at my university or just in general and i would start crying to her and would just unleash everything and you know you do a really good job listening so i think more of that but i think also i would love to just keep hearing more of what you are doing as well um in your own personal growth as a white woman 
and um, trying to make sure that you are living an anti-racist life and are are not implicit within systems of white supremacy. And so I would love to hear more how you are engaging with other people as well to make sure that those that you are interacting with on a daily basis are also not um, falling into racist actions and things like that. Our relationship in a lot of ways metamorphosizes, which it should, all relationships should do that. (laughs) But um, we've done a good job, I think, of becoming closer the older that we both have gotten. Yeah, I'm glad that you see it that way. And yes, if I was still parenting you as if you were in elementary school, there would be something really wrong with that. (laughs) Um, You know, one of the things I was going to ask you was, how did you feel about introducing me as your mom to people around you? Like, were you embarrassed or what other kind of feelings did you have when you might have been the one introducing me as your Mm. mom? Well, one thing is you would always make this joke, which I hated, honestly. (laughs) Every time my mom would be around someone new, she would be like, I know, don't we look just alike? We're such twins or something like that. And I'd be like, okay, I get that you're trying to like draw attention to the obvious to make it not so awkward, but it's just making me feel more awkward. <laughs> of course, when you're a child and you say, this is my mom, they'll say, how? <laughs> the children will be like, I don't get it. You're black and she's white. What are you talking about? And you have to be like, I'm adopted and you know, da 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 So I never was embarrassed but I always kind of was like okay I had to kind of prepare myself for like if I I'm gonna have to like explain my whole life to people who just don't understand that you can be a black child and have a non-black mom (laughs) um so there's just that sort of thing that came with it but I don't think really it was any sort of like oh god my white mom's coming over here but I think it's also because I had most of my childhood growing up I had white friends so it wasn't like if I was in a predominantly black neighborhood or something and I was like this is my white mom hello you know I think that would be different I think I would feel differently that way But being in predominantly white spaces, it didn't feel awful or it didn't feel um, embarrassing or weird to be like, this is my white mom, I guess. You and your sister were younger and you were at the YMCA swimming in the pool and I was outside of the pool, kind of in the hallway, just watching you. And this woman, well, it doesn't matter that she was educated, but she was highly educated. She was a nurse practitioner. She was somebody that I, because of my work, I had frequent contact with. And she looked at the two of you and wanted to know where you were from. Classic. But that kind of thing is a a kind of statement that I had heard on different occasions. I don't know. It's like, okay, do you not know that there are black children that live in Wisconsin? Are you, you know, what what are you talking about? (laughs) I didn't snap on her, but I wanted to. You should have normalized calling out uh, microaggressions from people that you know. That just triggered a different memory for me. Ooh, late on us. Do you remember when your sister, or maybe you weren't there yet, you're, yeah, because you were still in a different school, when your sister first went to the middle school, and um, she had a pair of shorts on. I, I was there. Were you there for that? Or, I mean, I know the whole story about the, the length of the shorts. Yeah. And then there was, like, all these rules about length of the skirt and, you know, how many inches it should be below the knee. And the first day, your sister went there. And um, the good sister, 
gave me a call. And <laughs> this was a Catholic middle school, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes. The good sister gave me a call and said that your sister's shorts were too short. And I knew that they weren't because I was pretty, you know, not having any problems after new school. And Respectability. And so um, the next day I had her wear them. And I walked in the school, and because, as your mother has done many times, probably embarrassed the hell out of you and your sister, <laughs> I think I had a tape measure. Yes. Me. And I walked up to um, the male teacher, and I said, you know, is this, is it, are these shorts too short? And then, and he was obviously, like, taken aback, like, oh, I don't think I really want to talk about it. <laughs> I was like, I'm shorts. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, you know, when the sister came in, she said, oh... No, that's so much better. <laughs> and I called your sister out in home and I said, I really don't want you to say anything to anybody about this. Because we both knew they were the same, you know, the same length. And I knew that that was because she was a young black girl. It had nothing to do with the, the length of the shorts. It had everything to do with the sister. Mm. I remember that, you know, as plain as day. Yeah, and you going in there as a white woman, as a white mom you know, were able to sort of appease the sister and fix the situation. <laughs> because she never would have called my sister out for having, you know, quote-unquote short shorts if you were there in the first place. She only did it because my sister was a young black girl by herself at the school, and she was able to target her and point out, you know, what was wrong with my sister's outfit. Well, and that happens in many different occasions. So, you know, this whole podcast episode is about what it means for a white woman to adopt black girls. And so another question that I had for you is, did you or do you ever question your motives of adopting black girls? And did you or do you ever think that your motives came from a place of white saviorism? Oh, man, I hope not, because I didn't feel like I saved anybody. And um, I think about it. I don't think that's where it came from. And I, you know, I worry that people would think that. I know that at one point your birth mom said that, you know, you're my angel. And I was just like, don't call me that. Don't call me that. So, yes, I thought about it. I don't think that it came from that place. But I, I have thought about that. And, you know, you know, sometimes people think that when someone adopts children oh aren't you so great it's like no i don't know that i can fully explain what a gift to me it has been to be the mother of you and your sister and if anyone's blessed it's me i have been blessed you know i have gotten more from parenting the two of you than i could ever explain i guess how so you said that and i think that's true that a lot of people can see a white woman or a white person adopting black um, children as being an act of saviorism. So how do we reconcile that? How do we make that not a thing? Because it does happen, of course. You know, a lot of people do yeah. do that. Well, I know, I know if I hear anything that even re remarkably sounds like that, I say something. I say, don't put me in that role. That's not who I am. And um, I think it's important that when people say those kind of things, to call it out, to call it what it is. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't ever want to be seen in that light because that is not who I am and that is not, not who I want to be. Yeah, I think, I think it's mostly calling it out 
you know, just naming it for what it is. Like, my daughters didn't need to be saved by me because I'm white. They didn't even need to be saved. They needed parents just like everyone else. And I know in parenting you, one of the things that I thought of was if your black mom was healthy, you know, mentally healthy and physically healthy, what would she want for you and what would she have done and what would she have taught you? And how can I think about those things? Where can I get information about that? How can I do this? Mm-hmm. Even though I know I'm going to miss the mark. Can you give I some can't. examples of some of the parenting that only can kind of be done by black moms? I don't have the lived experience. I don't have the lived experience of being a, a young black girl or woman and so there are ways in which I can't understand the experience and the othering that always happens I think or that often happens I I have not experienced that inside of myself I can only try to imagine the pain of that I can't completely understand it Yeah, I was thinking too, like, so in the episode I did with John about being in an interracial relationship, you know, I was talking about how some things are, I just really, it's easier to explain to other people than to John as a white man. And so I said that I I turn a lot to you to talk about things. And, you know, I was thinking about that because I, I talk to you all the time about the struggles that I face as a black woman. And, you know, that comes with being in graduate school, my imposter syndrome and um, the ways in which certain parts of um, or the ways in which the university is inherently racist and anti-black and, you know, things like that. And of course, you know, I can say all this stuff to you and you can get it to an extent, but just like John, you still can't fully understand it. And so with that, I can process a bit of my emotions with you but then I then will also turn to a black woman therapist and do sort of the rest of the work to process my emotions with with her and you know and it's it's a lot of it's a lot you know because if I was a white woman talking to my white mom I wouldn't have to do the extra step of also processing it with with someone else I mean it, it does help of course but there's just an extra added layer that comes with having to process my emotions one with my mom and then follow it up with another person who will very much so understand it from a racial perspective if that makes sense it does make sense and you know it pains me it pains me that i can't be that for you and also i'm i'm very thankful for the number of black women that you have around you that you can go to So the last question that I had for you is, why do you think it is considered more perhaps socially and culturally acceptable for white people to adopt non-white children, but when it's the opposite, when there's a non-white person adopting white kids, um, it's very taboo and isn't really, um, it's really frowned upon. Yeah, and I think that's awful. And, um... You know, I mean, I think it's just, it's a case of racism. And I think that sometimes people have the thought, well, if you're non-white, then you should be available to adopt non-white children. And that's what you should do. And um, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. There should be no rules about that. 
you know, there are rules in some places. For example, if you are to, to adopt a person that is Native American, you actually cannot because children were taken mm-hmm. from their parents and um and so that's in place to protect yeah i don't i don't understand why that's taboo totally because white people want to be able to raise white children so they think well you cannot possibly raise a white child if you are non-white mm-hmm. and i don't agree with that Conversely, I mean, there are a number of African-American people who do not believe that white people should parent African-American children, and I can understand why, you know, to the extent that I can, and at the same time, I know that there have not been enough families available for kids. Yeah, I think, like you're saying, I mean, it's all, how I see it is that it's, all wrapped up into white saviorism and racism and it's the idea that as a white person you have the responsibility and the insights to um, go out and adopt nine white children I think that I kind of compare that to you know missionaries and oftentimes missionaries will go out into non-white communities usually poorer communities in third world countries and they will do sort of quote-unquote the lord's work etc etc but that's also i mean that's just also a very colonial way of thinking but um so it's this idea of white people have this sort of moral compass that they can instill upon these sort of you know i'm saying this as you know using the language but as like these savages are sort of thing. So it's very much of this colonial, um, it stems from colonialism, I would say, um, and, and slavery too, for sure. Um, and of course, these savages aren't, aren't fit to, to, uh, to take care of people like us. But it's interesting too, because, I mean, that's definitely rhetoric. But then with slavery, for example, all of these black women were the ones who were mothering the white children. They were the ones who were breastfeeding the white children and, and taking care of them. And on the one hand, you aren't fit enough to to take care of white people. But on the other hand, we will give you all of the responsibility because we don't want to take care of them either. So um, I think just adoption in a lot of ways does have colonial and white saviorism attached to it. And of course, adoption is beautiful. And I'm very, very happy that I'm adopted and that you are my mom. But I think it would be remiss of me not to also mention the sort of underlying feeling as well, the underlying history, perhaps, that comes with adoption. I don't honestly know the history of it, but I would be surprised if there aren't papers done or articles written about how there is an element of colonialism and slavery attached to adoption. So those are all of my questions. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? No, to the white people that are listening. Here we go, a read. So white people, this is what we all need to do, okay? So we all need to do our own work. We all grew up in a racist society. We need to examine our beliefs, our actions, our emotions around how we interact with individuals who are black. And what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing to counteract those racist permeations that are everywhere in the structure of our society and individually? 
And I think that it is not for my daughter to teach you. It is not for any other African-American person to teach you. You have to go out and look into that for yourself. How do you do that? Well, so you can talk to other whites who are also working towards becoming anti-racist. You can be involved in groups or social events that have more brown and black bodies. You can read a variety of works written by black authors. But we, all of us white people, we all need to do more work. And don't put it on my daughters. Don't put it on them because it's not their job. It's not their job to educate me. It's not their job to educate you. You know, John had a very similar thing to say in in our podcast episode. So I'm glad that um, you both have similar sentiments when it comes to whose responsibility it is to um, to deal with uh, racism. (laughs) Because also, I think what's really annoying is that oftentimes you hear people who are like oh what's happening to the blacks that's so sad like racism is so bad just it's really frustrating when i hear people trying to put all of the responsibility of racism on or affixing racism on those who are most affected by it because that's truly such a way of releasing yourself from the problem and it is part of the problem is when you don't see yourself within a system that you're benefiting from exactly well and i you know the other thing i forgot to say is put your money where your mouth is do you support the urban league do you support the naacp do you support black lives matter do you do you pay reparations in some way do you you know what are you doing are you purchasing things from black owned businesses what can you be doing and the money that we have that was really this economy was built on the back of slaves mm-hmm. and so there's time to pay up it's been past time well this has been lovely um one question just to finish off the episode that i love asking my guests is what is this um conversation leaving you with what is it leaving you feeling i think you know it just reminds me of you know the work that I need to continue to do. It reminds me of pride I have in you and, um, you know, and um, how very happy I am and honored I am to be interviewed by you. Have a conversation with me. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm glad that I could be a part of question by question. Yay. I'm happy that you were also um, able to be a part of it. And this conversation is leaving me feeling very grateful um, for the life that I have and the mom that I have and the fact that, you know, with time, our relationship has gotten stronger and stronger. And um, I feel like we um, communicate really well. And I am just very grateful to have a mom who um, listens to me and um, who's there for me because not everyone can say that. So, you know, it's obvious in so many ways, the ways in which you would, you know, go to bat for me no matter what and how you've cursed out people in my, and me and my sister's names and, uh, you know, have done things to protect us that a lot of people wouldn't do. So um, I'm just grateful to have a mom 
who is, you know, true has been embarrassing before in the past. There's been things that you've done that are embarrassing, but <laughs> also just remarkable ways in which you um, um, protect us. So I love that. Well, this has been um, a very fun time for me. I always love talking to you and I love um, sharing you with and you and your knowledge with other people too my friends like i said are just in love with you as well so i'm sure people will really enjoy this episode um and yeah i'm very happy that i was able to get you in early (laughs) um so yes this has been another episode of the podcast question by question with me karen bauer Um, If you like this episode and you like the podcast, I would love it if you could subscribe and if you could rate and leave a comment on um, the podcast, that would mean so much to me. So yes, that is it. And I will talk to you guys next time. Bye.